Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm probably different from most people, but I, when I was in high school, I loved pop quizzes. I know, this sounds weird. I was the guy that loved pop quizzes. It's not because I was a hardcore nerd or anything like I might have been a little bit of a nerd. But my wife and I actually had an argument one day about who was the bigger nerd in high school. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, um, actually, the funny thing is she dominates me. She's like the bigger nerd, the bigger jock, the bigger cool kid. She's better than me at everything. So, But we had this, this idea that I love pop quizzes. And here's why. Not because... Um, I just, you know, like pop quizzes or like tests. Nobody likes tests. But I love pop quizzes because they were better to me than tests. Because they were a little bit easier because the teacher's like, well, if I'm going to surprise them, I'm going to make them a little bit easier. And tests, you have to study for, right? You have time, you get to prepare. I never prepared. So, like, I never studied. So I was like, ooh, pop quizzes are awesome because I can do well on those because tests I don't do as well because I don't like to study. So I love pop quizzes. I was ready. And it's because, like, the way I typically like to learn is I like to just sit there and not study. And I was just like, tell me the information. I'll try to remember it. And I'm good to go. So I loved pop quizzes in high school. This is my thing. So I know I'm probably the minority, but I loved pop quizzes in high school. And typically a teacher, now those of you who are teachers, you might be like, this is not true, Lawrence, but I'm going to throw it out there. Typically teachers throw out a pop quiz, not because they're sadists and they hate their students, some of you guys are like, no, that's, not, that, no, that's why I do it. But <laughs> Nick's over there be like, that's what. <laughs> um, they throw out pop quizzes because they often want to make sure, are you, are you learning anything in the process? They, are, you, are you, you know, some of them, though, the ones that are, the teachers that I admire, are the ones that are like, no, let's catch them. Let's just show, like, you guys don't know anything. You're not learning anything. Let's just catch them. And here we have Jesus in this story. And at this time, Jesus is on this trip, and he's walking, going to the region of Judea and beyond Jerusalem. Crowds are gathered around him again. And the Pharisees are gathered together, and they're like, let's test Jesus. Let's throw a pop quiz in his way. Let's watch him stumble. Because up to this point, he hasn't stumbled. Jesus is gathering a crowd of people. Now, he's angered a lot of Pharisees, but the people love him. And all of a sudden, they're like, what are we going to do? Let's catch him off guard. Let's throw a question in his way. Let's make him stumble. Let's make him mess up. 
And so they designed this test to say, Let's, this, this question will trip them up. You know, it's like one of those questions that you ask like pastors or preachers nowadays, like, you know, to kind of throw them up like a politically charged question or a question that has no right answer. Or like, I love it, my favorite ones when I talk to kids, like young people, they like to throw, well, but can God make a stone that he couldn't lift? Got you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you got me, kid. But I mean, it's the type of question that they thought this was a good question that we can trip up Jesus. And so they had this question. And it's a question of the issue of divorce. And it was an issue of, quite controversial issue, politically and religiously at the time. There were three main views amongst the Jewish people about the issue of divorce at the time. One, it's an open view that allowed divorce for any reason. Two, a narrow view that allowed it for immorality. And three, a closed view that did not allow divorce and remarriage. So in Judaism, in the first two views, only a man could initiate divorce, while in the Gentile world, either man or woman could. But in these cases, the purpose of divorce was for remarriage. So here are the, the, the people, the Pharisees are like, okay, there's three major views on this topic of divorce. If Jesus says an answer, he's like, well, I agree with the closed view. I agree with the narrow view. I agree with the, the open view. They're like, got him. Because that way at least one-third of the population or two-thirds of the population are going to not like him. So they're like, this is, this is foolproof, right? We can stumble Jesus this way. Not only that, but politically speaking, if he spoke out about a certain way, the king, Herod, had a divorce. As a matter of fact, it was a weird divorce. We'll get into that. Actually, we th- I think we talked about it in Matthew, Mark chapter 6. But King Herod actually had a divorce so he could marry his brother's wife. And so he had this weird situation. So he's, he's in this kind of trap. The, the, this, this set, the trap was set by the Pharisees. So they ask him this question. What do you say about divorce? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you, the way Jesus is, he's like, pop quiz has got nothing on me. And I'm ready to go. So he comes back and he just answers only the way Jesus can. He goes, well, okay. You want, you want to try to stumble? You want, me to, you want to test me? Let's start off with this. What does Moses command you? So he, he, very smart way, if you ever asked a tough question, like those of you guys are like, oh, you're a Christian? Let me ask you this question, right? You ever asked a tough question? Go ahead and follow back with a question. This is a good strategy. That's what Jesus did here. You know, someone says, can, can God make a rock that you can't lift? You can be like, well, um, what do you think? Or <laughs> what, <laughs> how, yeah, no, what, huh? No. Or you can go back to, well, so you believe there's a God? Throw it back at him. Ask a question. You know, if it's a controversial issue, you know, political issue, ask a question. Well, what does the scripture say? Or what what do people say? What do you think Christians believe on that topic? You see, Jesus is just just a good strategy guy. He's just smart. So he comes back and asks him a question. And he turns his whole conversation upside down. He answers in a way that the leaders don't expect. Very similar almost to the Sermon on the Mount, he goes and he dives into the true heart of the matter. Not looking for a legal clause, not looking for a way out, not looking to make a political stand, not looking to make a definitive statement that says this is what I'm saying. He's literally saying this is what it's all about. This is the heart of the marriage. This is the heart of the law. This is, he goes further into talking about what it is. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. My favorite book on marriage is a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. If you've ever, um, if you're married, I highly recommend reading that book if you've never read it before. If you're engaged or even in a serious relationship, I highly recommend that book. It's, it's an incredible book. And a lot of the stuff that I'm about to share with you um, on the idea of this, I'm going to share real, real quick, is on, from that book and a sermon by Tim Keller. And so I really recommend, so it's an endorsement. I should, I, it's almost like I should be like a publicity, uh, publicity guy for Tim Keller, but he doesn't need it. He's got all the publicity in the world. But I love it. So if I can endorse any book, I would really endorse that book. But people say, like, when I've, often, I've done a lot of marriages. I've done a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of ceremonies. And one of the things I'd often say in ceremonies, people often talk about, especially in this day, in this, in this era, like, what is the essence of marriage? Like, you talk about why are you getting married? You know, and people often answer is, because we love each other. Which is a good, sweet answer. I am not putting down that answer. That's a good answer. You know, um, it is. It's a great answer. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm, at my, at deep at my heart, I am a romantic. You know, I was the guy who, like, loved romantic comedies, even though I acted like I didn't. You know? I was the one who watched all of them, you know? And I was, like, kind of, like, wishing for that, but at the same time not, but then speaking out against it at the same time, being like, oh, it's so sweet. So at heart, I'm a romantic, so please don't hear this as saying you're taking away from romanticism. No, no, no. Guys, can I tell you, true marriage, the way God intended, is more romantic and more beautiful than anything Hollywood could ever dream up. And it's so amazing, but you have to see it from the right perspective. You have to understand it the right way. Guys, marriage and the essence of marriage, Jesus says it right here. A man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. That word hold fast, another translation is the word cleave. Have you guys heard that before? Man should leave his mother and cleave to his wife. And that's the essence of marriage. That word cleave literally means, when you think of the word cleave, it means like to connect. They're like, you know, that's kind of the idea here, you know. But it literally means to make a covenant. It means to make a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. And that's what happens when you're married. In Ezekiel 16, God says to Israel, I married you. When you were of age, I covered you with my robe. I made my vows to you and I pledged my faithfulness to you. The essence of marriage is covenant. I'll say that again. The essence of marriage is covenant. Marriage covenant says nothing about the present because the cleave to somebody means to make a promise and the promises have to do with the future. In a wedding, you typically declare your love, my unending love, my love is this, I love you this, and I love you that, which is amazing. But I want you to say, what you're, prom- what you're saying there is, beforehand, you're saying, I love you now. Right? This is my love for you now. But at a wedding, when you make a vow, you're saying, I'm going to love you tomorrow. It's a promise. Now, you don't know your feelings tomorrow, do you? Right? You don't know. You can wake up grouchy. You can wake up moody. You can wake up hating everybody. You don't know your feelings so much. So it is not dependent upon your present emotional state. Do you hear me on that? The essence of marriage is not dependent upon your present emotional state. It is totally dependent upon a future reality, a future promise. That's to say, I promise to love you. I promise to commit to you. I promise to be yours. I vow to be yours. Do you hear that? That is so different. I always make this statement, guys. I always hate the term falling in love. You guys heard me say that before? 
I hated the term falling in love. Oh, we just fell in love. And so sweet, you know, like we were just walking down the street and Cupid's arrow hit me and we fell. And we fell, oh, yay. <laughs> I hate that idea. Because if you can fall in love, then what's to stop you from falling out? Right? If you can just fall in love, then what's to happen to make you fall in love with somebody else? Right? I hate the idea of falling in love. I love the idea of choosing to love. Right? Because when you choose to love, you're promising your future reality. You're not saying, hey, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All I know is I choose to love you tomorrow. I don't know where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be like, but I'm going to choose to love you because that's my future promise, that's my vow, that's my sacred commitment. I will cleave to you. In covenant, you're saying, I promise to be affectionate, to be faithful, to serve you in whatever condition. You're not thinking about your feelings in that. Oh, I love you now. That's not a covenant. What it literally it's saying is my vow to you is this. You have me for forever and for now and forever. That's the essence of marriage. When Jesus is literally speaking into this, you guys are like, oh, you're looking for loopholes. You're looking for clauses. You're looking for this way or this. You're looking for all these little things. And Jesus is saying you've completely missed it. When God made man and he made woman, he said literally, man will leave his wife and he will cleave. He will make a covenant vow. You will become one flesh. And you don't tell your one flesh, oh, I, don't, I fell out of love with you. It just happened. We just grew apart. Growing apart is an intentional will just as growing closer is an intentional will. I'll say that again. Growing apart is one step at a time separation just as growing together though is one step choices as well. Does that make sense? And so I'll say to you, those of you who are married in this place, can I tell you this? It is choices day by day, every day choosing that I will love you today and I will love you tomorrow and I'll take another step closer to you. For those of you who are not married, guys, I want you to understand the sacred vow you're taking is not to say I will always love you because yes, it is to say I'll always love you, but it's not always like I, will, I might always feel head over heels in love with you at this moment. It's literally saying no matter what condition, I choose to love you because love is a choice. Do you guys hear me? So Jesus thought through the heart of the people on their test, not only the test, but the real reason, I want you to hear this, at the time that these people were probably asking yes to trip them up, but culturally speaking, the d divorces that were often occurring at this time were divorces because men were like, ah, I fell in love with another woman. I'm going to, because understand, the Jewish men were the only ones allowed to divorce a woman. Okay? So the Jewish men were the only ones allowed to divorce women. And so what they would happen is, well, okay, I kind of want to marry this other woman. Or this woman is not bearing children that I want. Or this woman messed up my food and she burned my food. This is actually in their law. So not in the law of Moses, right? But they had a book written out. Um, I had it written down, but I can't remember what it was. It's called Gemel. It's one of the New Testament scholars had it. Not me. I didn't know that much. But one of the New Testament scholars t said that... Um, they actually had a written book of like kind of explanation of laws. And in one of the ways that men were allowed to divorce their wife, according to this book, uh, for the kind of view, was that if she burned your food. See, this was an excuse for the society of men to say, okay, I want a way to leave the woman I'm with. I want a way to, to, to separate and get out of this covenant vow, this commitment. And Jesus is saying no to the current culture and their view of marriage. He was esteeming the blessed union and giving it its rightful place as ordained by God. 
He was saying to this culture, he's saying, no, your way of looking at marriage is so flawed. It's like the way often they look at their relationship with God. Wasn't it? What was their relationship with God supposed to be? It was based on a covenant, wasn't it? But what would they do? They would look for ways of earning right standing and look for loopholes. If I did this, then maybe I'm right, but I can get away with this. Right? Do you hear me? The way they viewed this idea of covenant was so flawed, and also not only with marriage, but also flawed the way they viewed their covenant with God. Do you see? And Jesus is saying, here's the heart. You're missing it. You're looking for the clauses, and it's messing up your warped vision of what marriage is. It's also messing up your warped vision of what your relationship with God is supposed to be. So let me put it to you straight. Let me tell you exactly what it's like. You're to cleave to each other and choose to love. You're making covenant vows. This is why Jesus cares so much about marriage, and this is why as a church we need to care so much about marriage. We know it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy in this culture to care this passionately about marriage, to care this much about purity and remaining faithful, but we care because Jesus cares. We care because he highly esteemed. So why is Jesus passionate about marriage? I want to give you four points, four reasons why Jesus is passionate about marriage. Number one, Jesus is passionate about marriage because it brings us back to right relationship that was found in the Garden of Eden. Because it was intentional, original design. This is what Jesus does. He is the Redeemer. Guys, I want you to understand this. If you look back at the Garden of Eden, and you see, if you go back to the Garden, you see man, and God created man, and he created everything else. He looked at earth, and skies, and fields, and animals. He's like, this is good. This is good. Right? He's creating everything. He's making all these awesome pronouncements. This is good. This is good, right? But he makes one negative pronouncement. Do you guys know what that is? Do you guys remember that? And you know what I'm talking about here when it says he makes one negative pronouncement? It's not good for man to be alone. Look at you guys. I heard multiple people say it. Good job. Bonus points. It is not good. That's the first time he says that, right? It is not good for man to be alone. His original design was for man to be known to be an intimate relationship, to be vulnerable, to be known by somebody, to be connected. It creates an image of shows how they were first initially designed that way to be in relationship with God, but also with each other. It is not good, so God creates woman. And Adam busts out in the poetry, he's the first, first poet. You know, he's all very smooth. He's like, oh, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. This is poetry, guys, this is romantic stuff. If you guys ever want to like write palm to your significant other, be like, ooh, she's flesh of my flesh. Is that good? No. I'll write that one down. <laughs> but that's what he does. He busts out in the poetry. He's like, whoa. He sees everything else in this world. He sees animals and beautiful landscapes. He sees plants. He's like, nothing works. Nothing's meant for me. But he sees woman. He's like, yes, busts out in the poetry, busts out in the song, busts out in the praise. He's like, yes, God, thank you. Some of you met her the same way at the wedding day. You're like, yes, God, yes. Thank you. I hope we all like that every day in your marriage relationship. You bust out into praise and you bust out into song and you bust out into poetry because, yes, she is one with me. He is one with me. 
So I want you to hear this. So in the garden, God created us to be known and intimate and in relationship, to be vulnerable. I want you to hear this. This is going to sound weird, but they were naked. They made us to be to each other, this idea of to be naked in front of each other. Not just naked physically, but naked emotionally, spiritually, to be vulnerable with each other. This is the intent of marriage. It also shows the intent of the human condition before the Father. To be known and to be intimate, to be in relationship. This marriage is so the, the, often the picture of understanding what vow is between even us and God. And he uses marriage in this way. But get this, this kind of commitment, this kind of intimacy, it's outside of us. Jesus is passionate about marriage. We see here, and N.T. Wright quotes this. When Jesus, about Mark here, when Jesus is talking about Mark, N.T. Wright says, he's now articulating a rigorous return to the standard of Genesis, to God's original intention. Jesus is either being hopelessly idealistic, or he believes that the coming of the kingdom will bring about a way for hearts to be softened. The fact that debates about divorce have concerned the church ever since indicates that this cure doesn't work automatically or easily. Equally, though, the fact that millions of Christians have prayed for grace to remain faithful to their marriage vows, often under great stress, have found the way not only to survive but to celebrate as one flesh indicates that the implicit promise is true. What, what that's saying literally is what, what N.T. Wright is saying when Jesus talks about return to the garden. He's literally saying, Jesus, you're either hopelessly idealistic or you've initiated something, you've done something to allow us to return to that ideal reality. See, I want you to get this. This is what Jesus does. We call him Redeemer. We sing about that all the time. But literally, what Jesus does is he restores and redeems what was broken in creation after the fall. Literally saying this, that what Jesus ultimately did is in the fall, we lost connection and relationship with God. We were cast out of the garden, separated from him by a flaming sword. And Jesus in his life and in his death and his resurrection literally took upon the flaming sword upon himself that which separates us from God, our sin, very brokenness. He took it upon himself, he died in our stead and now made restoration to the garden reality for us. And so in this doing, this is what Jesus does, he also does that with marriage. What marriage was intentionally designed for, this perfect helping unit, this one flesh that it was made to be. Jesus literally says in this idealistic statement, he says, this is what it's supposed to be. It seems so far out of reach, but he says, but through the work of his grace, it can be our reality because he redeems us to the Father. Not saying it's going to be perfect and easy, but his grace is sufficient. You see, Jesus is passionate about marriage because it brings us back to the original creational design that we were meant to live in, this garden reality. Two, Jesus is passionate about marriage because marriage in the way God ordained it for us is best for us. I'll say that again. Marriage, the way God ordained it for us, is best for us. Tim Keller says this, what is the purpose of marriage? I'm not asking what makes marriage make marriage, but this time I'm asking what is marriage for? The answer is in verse five. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There it is, for this reason we have marriage. For this reason. Critical passage, a critical little pivot. So what happens before that phrase will tell you why we have marriage. The answer is male and female, he created them. What Jesus is referring to is that strange and wonderful passage in Genesis two, where Adam was created 
And we have the first maldiction, the whole, it is bad, but for, so loneliness. It means a covenant partner. It means, this idea then, um, the bottom line is Jesus is teaching that the essence of marriage is a covenant, but the purpose of marriage is deep friendship. Several places in the Old Testament, your marriage partner is called Alup. A-L-L-U-P. Say that for me. Anybody pronounce that? Anybody with uh, more Hebrew background? I don't remember how you pronounce that. Alup? Alup? According to Casey Nichols, this is the Hebrew scholar. <laughs> Alup? It means a covenant partner. It means a covenant partner, one that you share everything with, one that you've committed, that you're completely known with, one that you can be naked with. I'm sorry, this sounds weird, right? But that's what it means. It means one, when you say naked, guys, this idea of vulnerability, of being open. That's what it's meant for, guys. Marriage in its right place is best for us, the way God ordained it for us. Because can you get this? I want you to hear this. If someone could leave you, can you ever be truly open? If you're afraid of someone leaving you, can you ever be truly open? You guys ever heard of prenuptial agreements? Anybody? You guys know prenuptial agreements? Why do you have a prenuptial agreement? Anybody? In case of divorce, right? So that what you have coming into the relationship is not taken away, right? Typically, it has to do with money, right? Assets, money. So if I have like five bazillion dollars and... You know, I don't want, if me and Gina get divorced, I want Gina to be like, well, I'll get all your money. And I'm like, no, it's my money. You know, that's typically the reason. It's typically money. But I want you to understand this. There's so much more than money that you have that you bring to a relationship, right? You bring your emotional capital, your spiritual life, your heart, your soul, who you are. You come into this vulnerable place. Can I tell you, if somebody can take half of me and walk away, I don't know how open I could be. I might need a prenuptial agreement. Does that make sense? If I, there was a way for, for somebody to just take half of me and walk away with it, I might need like, no, no, don't take that. My heart, I can't take that. You can't take that half of me. Guys, what, what God made us to do is to be fully open, fully trusting, fully vulnerable in this relationship because it's the best way. But guys, when we don't choose to cleave and his marriage is not done the way God's way, then it is not his way, it's not the best way for us. Marriage is right in the way God restored us and made it for us to be right and pure. That's why, guys, I want you to hear this. It's so important when God, the Bible talks about being pure uh, prior to marriage. This idea of one flesh and this, this idea that God has called us to something sacred. Guys, I want you to hear this. God does not call us to these standards because he's like, I want to ruin their fun. You know, I want to mess up their lives and make them struggle. He calls us to this because he has a best way in store and plan for us. I don't want you to hear that. God doesn't make a random list of rules to be like, well, let's see. Follow that one and follow this one and you're good to go. You know, follow this one just to see, just, just as, you know, for fun, you know. He's not, he's not a teacher who comes up with a random rule like, ah, there's no reason for this rule, you know, that I'm just going to make it up because I'd like to see the kids squirm a little bit. I would be a messed up teacher. <laughs> I really would be. It's a good thing I'm not a teacher. I would do that. God doesn't do that. What God does is say, no, 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 my ways are best because I know my people. I love, guess what? I created you. I know you. I made you for purpose. 
And so in marriage, this is what I made you for. And this is why the rules of like purity before marriage, because guys, you understand, and girls, you understand, coming into a relationship when there's all that baggage changes stuff. Guys, hear me though. For those of you who have sinned and who've messed up, which is every one of us who've sinned and messed up, there is forgiveness and there is redemption. But we all acknowledge that there is a best way that the scripture calls us to. He ordained it. It's beautiful. This is what it is. Marriage in the right way is what's best for us. Um, Danny shared this with me, and I actually haven't heard this one. But it was, a, it was an illustration of using sex like, like fire. Sex in the right place, you know, in this right relationship, is like a fire in the fireplace. It's amazing. It's beautiful. On a cold day, warming your hands or roasting, like, marshmallows over it. It's just it's amazing. Fire is like, it's like the best thing in the world. But you move it five feet out. And it's devastating. It destroys the house. It's the most dangerous force. Right? And so this idea then, this idea, this is what God knows the best way for us to experience the best good. We trust that. And Jesus is so passionate, so passionate about marriage because it's the best way for us. Guys, I also want you to hear this. Number three. Jesus is passionate about marriage because he believes in the family structure of marriage and children is a primary form of discipleship. I'll say that again. Jesus is passionate about marriage because in that family structure that he's created is a primary form of discipleship in this world. It's no accident that right after this passage or connected to this passage on marriage is the arrival of the children, right? You guys, we didn't read that, but right after, you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 16, literally right after Jesus says, um, talks about marriage and divorce, it says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. There is no, there is an absolute reason, intentionality Mark had when he said they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, blessed him, and laying hands on them. Mark is connecting marriage and children intentionally. Family life is a primary form of discipleship. We believe that discipleship starts in the home. Even at Waypoint Church, we believe that discipleship intentionally, in its best way, the plan that God's made, it starts in the home. That your number one job as parents is disciple makers of your children. We believe that, 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 that this kind of Discipleship is, is his best way. Now, guys, I want you to hear this. Jesus used kind of a, in this day and age, the idea of divorce is a touchy issue because what is the divorce rate? Something like 53, 56%. It always depends on what study you use. Divorce is a common, common reality in this world. And there are some who say Jesus sounds so harsh. You know, it says here that, um, and he said that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And she divorced her husband and married another. She came and saw. He says that Jesus' language seems harsh here when it comes to adultery, or not adultery, when it comes to divorce. And I want you to hear something. Jesus is passionate, not harsh. He's passionate about what he, how much he esteems marriage and the heart of what marriage is. 
But I also want you to hear this. Divorce is a reality. Sin is a reality. Every one of us, every single one of us has sin in our hearts, and we've done so much. It's like the Sermon of the Mount, isn't it? When Jesus talks about, no, not only if, are, you, are, you, are you messing up, but you, know, you actually just look at a woman, you know, with lust. You're coming adultery. You're like, what? You know, and every man's like, dang it. You know, it's just, he's going extreme. He's saying, I want you to get this. Sin is in your heart. It's there. And then he goes even further. He says extreme statements like, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Puck out your eye. Right? I want you to understand this, guys, that Jesus' passion is for the high calling and the high esteem he has for marriage. Because he ordained it to, in Genesis to be the right order. It's the best way for us. And it's a primary form of discipleship. But I want you to know this, that divorce, like Austin, is redeemed and forgiven in the blood of Jesus. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? As a matter of fact, if you look at Jesus' lineage, you see examples of divorce and redemption. I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this. That yes, we believe primary discipleship is done in the house, but does not mean it's the only way. Do you get me? As a matter of fact, Matthew 19 says, Jesus says, some are called to remain single for the cause of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says he wishes more for those who are single for the cause of the kingdom. That there, yes, discipleship, marriage, and relationship and family is one of the primary means, but there are some who are given the blessed gift of singleness. I'm going to say that again. Given the best blessed gift of singleness. Because there are some who are given the blessed gift of marriage, and there are some who are called to the blessed gift of singleness. And I call both blessed because they're both ordained by God for his purposes. So for those of you who are hearing this sermon on marriage, and you're like, I'm not married. I would love to be married. Marriage would be awesome. Yes, it is. It's a beautiful thing. But maybe some of you are called to be single for the rest of your life, or maybe some of you are called to be single now. And this idea, guys, I want you to understand, what makes marriage so awesome? Because it's just a small picture. It's just a small taste of the incredible relationship that you have with Christ. Because let me tell you, that there is no other spouse, husband, or wife that can fulfill you, meet your needs, and who will truly sacrifice for you the way Jesus does. That the yearning in your heart for true intimacy and true connection, the loneliness that you feel, can only be answered by the God you were made for. So when you look to be fulfilled in anything other than God, it will fail you always. So I want you to understand that marriage is incredible, marriage is beautiful, but it's only just a small glimpse, it's only just a small taste, it's only just a picture of the beautiful relationship, the incredible reality of you being in relationship with God. Can you rest in that? Will you trust in that? Will you embrace then whether you're married or whether you're single, that both is a gift of God? Amen? Last thing, and I, yeah, I need to hurry here. Last thing that, why reason why Jesus is passionate about marriage is shows the beautiful mystery of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I would say that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Jesus is passionate about marriage because he chose to use marriage as a beautiful picture of the way Christ and the church, as a way of revealing this beautiful mystery of the way Christ and the church is in this incredible relationship together. He's passionate because he wants us to show the world through our marriages what sacrificial love looks like, the way Jesus sacrificed himself for the church, what mutually nourishing and enriching and partnership for advancement looks like, the way Jesus and the church are working to advance the kingdom on this earth. Guys, Jesus is passionate about marriage because, one, it is, um, I lost my spot here, sorry. Because it brings us back to Genesis, the reality of Genesis 1, the garden, the intimacy that we were made for. Two, it's best for us. Three, it's the primary means of discipleship. And four, it shows Christ in the church. We thank God for the institution of marriage that he gave us. He blessed this blessed union. But more than that, we thank him for the intimacy, the vulnerability, and the relationship that he's given each and every one of us as followers of his, as beloved children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, your great mercy and love for us. That while we were so far from you, God, while we were the ones who ran from you, you pursued us to the end. God, that your love for us was a choice. That you're not going to fall out of love with us. God, that you're not going to fall out of caring for us. But by your power, because your name is true, because your vows are true, we know we're secure in you. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to call communion now our wedding feast. Now here's the deal, here's the amazing thing. What is, what is a wedding feast? What's the reception? It's a celebration of the covenant, isn't it? Right, when you get married, you all get together and you party, you dance, you eat some food, right? And you do that because woohoo, the covenant happened. They're married, we're celebrating them. Guys, can I tell you, we're gonna do that with communion today, is that we celebrate because the wedding happened. Christ died for us, we are his, he is ours. As a church, we are the bride. So we're going to treat communion today like a wedding feast as we remember the price that Jesus paid for us. He pursued us like a, a groom pursues a bride. He paid the bride price. He paid the dowry. He said, oh, that's, how expensive are they? How expensive is that wife? You know, old, olden times, right? The old school times, are like you always had to pay, you know, like, oh, for your daughter, here's this amount of money or whatever it may be. It's bride price. Jesus paid it. He paid the ultimate price. He gave himself up. So we're going to celebrate communion as we celebrate a wedding feast. If I have the elders come forward and help as a